Section 11 of Ruth of Boston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ruth of Boston, A Story of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, by James Otis. Section 11. Philip Ratcliffe's Crime. The punishment of Thomas Morton saddened Susan and myself sorely, but not so much as when one Philip Radcliffe was punished. He was such a wicked man that he went around the town saying he believed the devil was at the head of our church, and in every way casting reproach upon religion, despite the fact of his having been warned again and again that unless he put a bridle to his tongue, punishment would speedily follow. He did not heed to the warning, however, and after a time, which was during the third summer of our being in this land, he was brought before the court, as one who had cast reproach upon God. For this he was sentenced to be whipped, to have his ears cut off, to be fined forty shillings, and afterward to be banished to England. Because of this man's being so very, very wicked, Susan and I believed we should go to see him whipped and gathered with the people at the pillory, where he stood with his neck and arms clutched by the heavy bars of wood. But when Samuel Morgan made ready the heavy whip, just as the man's back was bared to receive the lashes, we turned away in horror, not daring to look. Father said, when he came home in the evening, that Ratcliffe bore the whipping and the ear-cutting without a cry. But when it was over, he threatened vengeance against us after he should be set free in England, and later we came to know what he meant by such threats. He went everywhere about in the old country, telling that the new world was a hideous wilderness in which roamed the wild savages thirsting for the blood of white people, that the land was rocky and barren, and not fit for farms, for no farms could be raised upon it, that the weather was cold, and that the climate caused deathly sickness. All this, father said, worked to our harm among those godly people who were inclined to join us, for they feared to come into such a place, not understanding that these things were lies which had been told out of a spirit of revenge. In the Pillory Another wicked person who had come to Boston was Henry Lynn, who was no sooner living among us than he wrote letters to England by every vessel full of slander against the churches, and of those who took part in the government. He was forced to stand in the pillory, from sunrise to sunset, and was then sent back to England, with the warning that if he ever returned, worse punishment would follow. It has come to my mind that possibly some who read these words may not have seen a pillory, for I am told that there are places in this world where the people so fear God and love their neighbors that there is no need they be punished. Therefore will I set down, as best I may, a description of that instrument of shame that stands near to where lives Master Wilson. First, a platform of logs is made of such height that he who stands upon it can be seen of all the people, and from the center of this rises a stout log to the height of four feet or more. On the top of the upright timber, and fastened immovable, is a puncheon plank on the upper edge of which are cut three grooves, 
the middle one large enough to contain a man's neck, and the other two his wrists. Now a second plank is fashioned to fit down over the first one, with other grooves in it to match. Whosoever must be punished is forced to stand upon this platform, with his head and arms fastened securely in the holes of the planks, exposed to the view of all the people, during so long a time as the sentence demands. In addition to being a most shameful punishment, it must be exceeding painful, for one may not stand very long in the same position without becoming cramped, and he who is in the pillory cannot move hands or head. STEALING FROM THE INDIANS I grieve to say that there were some among our people who seemed to believe there was nothing of crime that could be committed against a savage, and Master Josiah Plastow, whom we had ever looked upon as a godly man, showed himself to be knavish where the brown people were concerned. Chicatabit, the chief of the Massachusetts Indians, of whom I have already spoken, brought proof to Boston that Master Plastow had stolen three and a half bushels of corn from some of his people, living near Nepenset, and on being charged with the offender by Governor Winthrop, Master Plastow confessed that he had done so, claiming that it was not stealing to take from the savages. The Governor and his assistants thought differently, though, for Master Plastow was fined five pounds in money, and ordered to send six and a half bushels of corn to the Indians, from whom he had stolen after which all people were forbidden to call him master any more, but must give him only the name of Josias. Captain Stone believes this sentence to be wrong, and openly called the justice unseemly names. He was straightway summoned before the court, and fined one hundred pounds in money for speaking disrespectfully of one in authority. Nor was this the only case where fault was found with the punishment inflicted upon Josias. Henry Lyon wrote a letter to a cousin of his in Plymouth, another to a friend in Salem, and sent four to London, all of which were filled with harsh words against the governor of Boston, and the manner in which justice was dealt out. He was given twelve lashes on the bare back, and banished to England. THE PASSING OF NEW LAWS when we had been in this village two years, there was much vexation because of the greater portion of the gold and silver money, which our people had brought with them, having been sent back to England in order to purchase goods there. And the result was that even those who were well off in the things of this world found themselves unable to pay their debts. Therefore it was that the court ordered corn to be taken in the stead of gold and silver unless money or beaver-skins were set down in the writing as the method of payment agreed upon. At the same time another law was passed, part of which seemed to bear heavily upon those who were homesick to the point of going back to England, and yet may have offended the officers of the law in some way. It was declared that no person should be allowed to depart out of the town of Boston, either by sea or by land, or to buy goods out of any vessel, or of the Indians, without permission from the magistrates. I know it is not seemly for a girl to question that which her elders have done, and yet there were many times when it seemed to me as if such a law worked injury to us of Boston. I might not have given so much heed to matters which do not concern girls, but for the fact that Susan's father had crossed the neck on his way in search of wild animals, 
and having come some four miles into the forest, he met an Indian who had on his back a half-bushel of corn in a basket. The savage took a fancy to the girdle he wore, offered to give him the corn, and bring as much more on the following day, if the belt were given to him then. Susan's father, believing that the law against buying provisions of an Indian, would not be carried so far as to prevent a bargain like the one which the savage had offered, stripped off his belt and took the corn. On coming back to the town, Samuel Goodlove, one of the tithing men, met him, and asked how it chanced he had set forth in search of wild fowl, and brought back corn. Thinking no harm, Susan's father told all that had been done in the forest, and straightway he was brought before Governor Winthrop, who fined him ten shillings, and the corn he had brought on his back four miles, for having offended the law. In addition he was sentenced to give back to the Indians as much corn as he had taken, but without demanding from him the girdle that had been given over. End of section 11